Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of So Important. On this show, we cover all kinds of topics as we chat with people from all walks of life about something interesting and important to them. Today, we are talking with Rabbi Chuck Diamond, the former rabbi of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Rabbi Diamond is going to give us his unique perspective on the horrific events that took place at the Tree of Life Synagogue on October 27th of last year. That was the date when a lone gunman mowed down 11 members of the Tree of Life community and injured several others only because they were Jewish. We were all mortified and transfixed as the events at the Tree of Life unfolded, and when it was over, well, we all wanted to do something. We attended community services, we reached out to our religious leaders, we made donations, we wrote on Facebook and took to social media, and when we turned on the news, we often saw a handful of individuals talking on behalf of Pittsburgh's Jewish community. Rabbi Diamond was one of those individuals. So let's welcome Rabbi Diamond, whom I have known since childhood, to the show. We both grew up in Squirrel Hill, where the Tree of Life is located, and as kids, we attended the same synagogue. In 2010, Rabbi Chuck became the senior rabbi at the Tree of Life. He served in that position for many years, and in 2017, he formed Kehila Lala, an all-inclusive community engaging people in the joys of Judaism. The show notes provide a link to Rabbi Diamond's community if you wish to make a donation and support his good work. Rabbi Diamond was kind enough to speak to our congregation at Temple Emmanuel in Kensington, Maryland, and we talked shortly after. Rabbi Diamond, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Monty, and I'm glad to be here. As I've said over and over, people call me Rabbi Chuck. I grew up in Pittsburgh, true Pittsburgher, bleed black and gold like everybody else, and I live in the community where the shooting at the Tree of Life congregation took place. I'm the former rabbi at Tree of Life for the Simcha congregation, working up to about a little over a year and a half ago. Started a little congregation, really more of a community, Kahilalala, which uh, is just a community mainly for people who don't like synagogues and uh, have a good group of people. Tree of Life uh, is literally in my backyard. It's a couple blocks away from where I grew up and from where I live today. Squirrel Hill is a wonderful community. Uh, it's very tight-knit. It's a good Jewish community. The attack that took place at the Tree of Life was an attack that took place on the entire community, Jews and non-Jews alike. Uh, the Islamic Center within days raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to support the Jewish community. Uh, Jews and non-Jews took to the streets in vigils, just showing their support and comfort for each other. So you hear that Squirrel Hill and Pittsburgh is a wonderful community, and it, it really is. It's a great place to raise your kids, and I'm very happy that I, having gr grown up there, to move back there and to raise my kids there and to live there now. October 27th is a day that, uh, like so many other uh, mass shootings, will live in our history. It's, it's a day when the biggest anti-Semitic act in our country has taken place. Uh, our synagogue, which houses three synagogues, a small conservative congregation, New Light, a small reconstructionist congregation, Dor Hadash, and a, a, a Tree of Life congregation, Tree of Life for the Simcha, which has just had a long history of, I think, 150-some years in, in Pittsburgh. Um, and it was a quiet Shabbos morning like any other. 
people came to, to the building, the, the regulars, mostly elderly, who start off the, the, the Shabbat services. 9.45, people gathered in the chapel from Tree of Life or the Simcha, a few people to start the service. A few people gathered downstairs for new light, and uh, uh, there were three people there at that time for a study session. By 10 o'clock, 10.05, I received a phone call from somebody who asked me if I knew what was going on at the tree, told me about an active shooter, and he had said that he had heard there were already four people dead. Turned on the news, and again, there's all of these reports, again, most of them not knowing really what was going on. I got dressed. I wanted to do something. I uh, went as far as I could go. They would let me go a couple blocks from the synagogue, and I was there trying to comfort people. I ran into a old friend of mine that I'd known since kindergarten, Alan Malinger, and he was just so worried. His uh, mother, Rose, 97-year-old mother Rose, and his sis sister, Andrea, would go every week to synagogue and would be there at that time, and he just was waiting to hear what was going on. Originally, as soon as I heard, I started to call people that I knew might be there. And I have a friend uh, who would usually go with his family. He'd usually be there on time. But he traveled from uh, probably 40 minutes away, and he got caught up in traffic. So I made some calls. His son told me he thought he was at the hospital. He's a doctor. I finally got a hold of him. He said that he had been turned away. He had got there a little bit late, and the police turned him away. But he noticed that uh, there was somebody's name on the um, hospital board who was coming in, and it turned out to be this Alan Malinger sister. So uh, she had been shot in the in the arm um, and had survived. So, uh, But he hadn't heard about his mother. And then I, I uh, headed over from there to the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, where they had a comfort and trauma unit set up. And uh, again, I ran into the family members who were waiting to hear. It became obvious that as the day went on and you didn't hear about somebody that they had been killed. And and you knew many of these people personally, right? right. right? And I knew these I knew everybody who the victims, eleven victims. I, I knew them all, some better than others. Alan Malinger, his mother Rose, ninety seven years old. And again, the report everybody likes a good story, so it came out she was a Holocaust survivor, but she wasn't. But she was ninety seven years old. She was in good health. I used to see her walking. I'd always offer a ride home. She never took it. She was always schlepping the bags from the grocery store. She always came to synagogue. And she was pretty matter of fact. We used to kid around with her. And she would always say, oh, come on, let's get on with it. You know, uh, enough of these announcements. Uh, and she had a part. She would do the prayer for the, for, uh, the country every week. Uh, sort of became our, our tradition. Uh, and, and I really, I have to say, I loved her. Uh, known her family for just a long, long time. The boys... Many people have heard about the boys who were killed, Cecil and, and David. They were uh, child, mentally challenged, but they were just, uh, I call them angels from God. They just brought joy, um, had no mean bones in their body. And Cecil would be there at synagogue every week, sitting on the bench as I would walk in. I'd come in around 9.30, and he'd say, Rabbi, you're late. And I'd say, Cecil, you're chasing everybody away. And I'd say, what are you sitting here? No, nobody's here because you're chasing them away. Or we'd uh, he'd say something like, are you coming to dinner this week? And I'd say, I'm not coming. And he'd say, you're bad. You're bad. His brother David, a little quieter, but would always be shuckling, you know, shaking up and down with the prayers next to me. He would say, uh, the police are looking for you. you know, and I'd say, no, they're looking for you, uh, David. Um, Cecil, I think, was the first one who was killed because he was there greeting people. And when the gunman walked in, Cecil was probably there to greet him. 
David was a little bit confused and ran out into the hall towards the gunman and towards his brother and uh, wanted to call home, and he, he was killed soon after. Uh, they were just beautiful boys. They grew up around the corner from me. I miss them so much. They brought, they just were so wonderful. Cecil, they used to call him like the mayor of Pittsburgh, cause he, he, and he always would listen. He knew everything that was going on because he'd always be in the background listening to you. When I was at the Jewish Community Center, um, his sister was there, who I knew a little bit, and uh, she didn't know what was going on, and, and I, I felt that she needed to know, and they asked me to tell her that I was pretty sure Cecil had been killed. David, I wasn't so sure at the moment, uh, but, you know, it's just the tough part of being a rabbi is telling somebody that uh, their brother had just been, you know, executed in a way. Um, other people, pretty much, uh, Irv Younger, who was there, a great guy, Irv. He was another guy who was uh, in the back, greeting people, handing out a book. And I'm sure that when he heard the shots, they thought it was a coat rack falling over, and he, he ran out to, to help. And uh, I think he was one of the next ones killed. Irv, great guy. Um, I knew his his kids growing up. They were in my Hebrew school. I, I've been Irv's rabbi for a long time. Uh, we'd have discussions about baseball and politics. We didn't always agree on politics, but it was always done with great respect. Uh, I taught a class at the Jewish Community Center where I'd see him every week. So the, the, the shooter made his way to these different places within the shul. He came downstairs, I think. He probably killed a few people in the hall, came downstairs, shot a few guys who were in the kitchen and making bagels. Two wonderful, wonderful. Everybody who was killed was just a wonderful soul. Never hurt anybody, just were in shul to study, to pray, and they were killed only because they were Jewish. That was their great sin. So when he came downstairs, he killed these two guys who were in the kitchen, and then some of the members of the congregation, I guess, heard the shooting, and they hid in a closet in the front of their room, and it's dark, totally dark in the closet. One of the gentlemen, uh, Mr. Wax, Melvin Wax, he's such a wonderful guy, 88 years old, and in this congregation, he would be there every week leading, starting the service. He could, he was hard of hearing. And when they were in the closet and he, I guess, didn't hear anything. So he opened the door and the gunman was right there and he was shot. The gunman stepped over his body and he looked into the closet and they could see him, the people in the closet, but he couldn't see them. He turned, he turned around and, and left. And the rabbi, I have to say, has is shake I mean you can understand going through something like that. First of all, seeing some of your congregants killed and then surviving, thinking your life might be taken. A group of rabbis have been coming in each week to fill in for him from out of town, friends of his. So, you know, the question becomes, what do you do? Everybody wanted to do something. Uh and of course that first week the funeral started. And every day of the week there was a different funeral. So people poured out to the funerals. I think the brothers were the first funeral. People uh, came to the synagogue, to the corner, and, and they would put flowers and light candles and put up little uh, signs, monuments to the victims. The newscasters descended upon the synagogue and set up their little tents. So you had CNN and MSNBC and NBC New York and all over the place and interviewing. And I, I seem to have gone from one interview to the other there that whole week. Israel, Scotland, Norway, all over the world were, were uh, asking me for interviews because my name got out there as someone who had been associated with the congregation and that I was available and I was willing to share my thoughts. The week after, I led a vigil, a healing service at the corner outside the synagogue. 
And with little publicity, hundreds of people, a couple hundred people, over a couple hundred people showed up in the rain, Jews and non-Jews alike. And there were vigils in the community that Saturday of the shooting. The high school kids put together a vigil up at the corner of Forbes and Murray, which Monty, you know, is a popular uh, corner in our community. I think the next day there was a vigil at Soldiers and Sailors Hall, where by the time I got there, I was hundreds deep outside in the rain. I didn't even make it inside for it. Um, And all the rabbis were there in the community and lots and lots of people. People were stopping me on the street, you know, just thanking me for my words of comfort. Jews and non-Jews, people I knew and didn't know. And again, uh, the community really did come together. The people, as I mentioned, with Irv and David and Cecil, everyone, they have a face, they have a name, they have a family, and they're no longer with us. I feel tremendous sadness each and every day. It's with me. And I can still, like I still have my sense of humor, I still can experience joy. But that sadness, just it's part of who I am now. It's part of the fabric of our community. And it's a part of uh, the fabric of, of who I am as a rabbi. So where do we go from here? And I mean that in terms of keeping this in people's memories and making sure that it doesn't just fade away. Right. Well, like anything in Judaism, you, you have come up. What do we come up with? We come up with rituals of ways of remembering. We light candles. We say prayers. We give money to tzedakah. So I'm here this weekend with Monty at his synagogue uh, speaking. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Part of the reason is to make it personal for people. Let them know about Irv and Cecil and David and Joyce and uh, Dan and and, uh, Richard, uh, Jerry, all all, all the the people who were killed. Let them know it's personal. Let them know that there are are families out there who are grieving and will never have the warmth of their grandfather holding them. So I think we need to do that. I encourage people to do acts of loving kindness. Gemilut Chassadim. And by doing it in the memories of those victims. So it gives their lives, their deaths, really, meaning. We have to fight hate wherever we see it. So how do you fight hate? You fight hate by doing good and and, um, and making other people's lives better. I had the uh, experience of helping somebody. I don't want to go into the details of how I helped them. And one woman said to me, I've never, I've read about this, like paying it forward, but I've never experienced this and how wonderful this is. And I'm sure she'll go out and do something nice for somebody else. That's all I ask. Um, and that's how I feel we can we can fight hate. But also, look, we have to uh, push for more gun control. And I'm not saying that people can't own guns, but I see no use of an assault rifle other than to kill people. So I would be for banning assault rifles. But again, people want to hunt. That's really their choice. I think we have to speak out against anti-Semitism and, and hate. So when... When something happens or white supremacists uh, speak out or do things as they've done, our leaders have to be more forceful in their rhetoric in, in, in speaking out against it. This was one individual who had hate. He's to blame for what he did. But it makes it easier sometimes for people to uh, express their hate. I'm wondering if you can tell people a little bit about what you're doing in terms of the community that you've established to okay. move this message forward. So what I've been doing a couple of things. One is I, I, I felt a calling almost, I have to tell you. I started to write on Facebook and I started to write every day. I wanted to write for, in Judaism, we have a 30-day mourning period called the Shloshim. And my goal was to write every day. And I did almost every day, not Shabbos. And my pulpit grew by hundreds of people. I didn't even know some of them, Jews and non-Jews. 
And they all told me how they were really moved by my words. And it was like powerful to have this sort of ability to help comfort people. And so I, I've sort of taken on that role in a way, this unofficial spokesman and, and this uh, to write and to share my writings, which I've never really done before. In the city, I, I, I tend to comfort people, but it's sort of, it's low key in a way, because I let the rabbis from the synagogues handle what they need to do and the community leaders. So I'm sort of operating on my own under the radar in some ways. And so I've been of uh, help to a lot of people that way. Um, I want to speak. I've spoken in a few places, had the opportunity to speak in London when I was passing through and to be here. And I have some opportunities coming up. So I hope to do more of that. Uh, so I have this uh, small community, Kahilalala. And uh, I started this, uh, I call it a minion of, Rabbi Chuck's minion of superheroes. And that we all have the ability to be a superhero. So the question is, I would ask you, Monty, like, what's your, what's your superpower? And then I would help you if you can't, if you don't know, most people say, oh, I don't have a superpower. And then I, I help them sort of figure out what their superpower is. And uh, I started a Facebook group, over 300 members to that. And I try to post when, when I read things of people doing good things. And I started a fund uh, through this Kahilalala, which um, uh, is, is a fund for superheroes to do their, the minion of superheroes to do good things. And so I use that money specifically for helping others however I can. Uh, you can go to ravchuck.com and make a donation through Abs there. Absolutely. But, uh, I appreciate the uh, opportunity for a little commercial. But uh, so that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to do good stuff, Monty, and helping people. If there's one message that you want people to walk away with from this more than anything else, what would that be? Well, I think it's probably a couple messages into one, but it would be we have to look out for each other. We have to be have each other's back. That's number one. And number two, not just for us, but for all people, Jewish or non-Jewish, we have to be there for each other. And we have to keep doing Gimilut Chassadim, acts of loving kindness and, and making a better world. Uh, tikkun Olam is fixing the world. So together we can do it. Thank you for those beautiful words. And thank uh, you for Monty. spending a little time with me. My pleasure, Monty. Take care. Powerful and inspiring words from Rabbi Chuck. And I thank him once more for joining me. And I want to thank Cantor Lindsay Cantor for providing the beautiful and inspiring music that you heard at the start of the show. The song is Olam Chesed Yivanei, We Will Build This World From Love. Please subscribe to the show, rate and review us, all those things. And you know what would be a great thing to do? Share the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Help get people interested in hearing all these interesting people and all their interesting stories. And as we think about Rabbi Diamond's words, let's listen to Cantor Lindsay. Here's the song in full. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, dear listener. Talk with you soon. <laughs>